This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today on Dreamland, we're going into the deep woods, the very, very, very deep woods. And yet at the same time, we might be just going into your own backyard because we're talking about Bigfoot with two documentary filmmakers, Toby Johnson and Brett Eichenberger, who have made a wonderful documentary uh, called A Flash of Beauty. And we'll find out from them in just a few minutes why they titled it A Flash of Beauty. Toby Johnson is the author of the Owl Moon Lab books. He's a researcher into all things related to Bigfoot. He is, in fact, a Bigfoot fanatic, as you would think. Uh, And Brett, both are. Brett's an award-winning filmmaker. He's 20 years of experience working in the film and video production industry. Uh, He's worked on feature films like Light of Mine and Pretty Broken, commercial short films, all kinds of things. Uh, He is most at home in the outdoors of the Pacific Northwest as a native Oregonian He's been intrigued by Bigfoot since he was a kid. Gentlemen, welcome to Dreamland. Thank you for having us, Whitley. Great to be well, here, Whitley Streamer. Yeah, thank you for coming. Uh, and you can learn more about uh, their documentary on BigfootDoc.com. Let's start talking about A Flash of Beauty. And I, I, I promised my viewers and listeners that I would ask you first off why you titled it that because it's an unusual title for a show about Bigfoot. So the title came to us from an interview um, that we did with a a gentleman by the name of Stan Avery and Stan's actually he's a plumber down in um, on the southern Oregon coast he's kind of a confidant to a lot of folks down there that just kind of need an outlet um, you know, with their Bigfoot stories. So during the interview, Stan talks about how the typical Bigfoot encounter is like a flash of beauty. You see them and then they're gone. And there was something about that that really resonated with me. I felt like, um, you know, there there is much more to these beings than what the general public thinks. You know, the general public is kind of like, well, you know, they're a sticker you put on the back of your car. They're a pop icon to a certain extent, and they're also, um, or they could also be monsters, you know, these mythical monsters, and that's really not the case. It's, well, yeah, you know, one does think in terms of mythical monsters when you're looking at a, an eight-foot-tall ape, which by all res- reports smells rather rather nasty, and, um, I mean, is big and not supposed to be there, and yet there it is. You know, uh, some of the some of the witnesses in the, you got. Did you get every Bigfoot witness that's now alive in this show? Because you've got so many Bigfoot witnesses, it's fabulous. We 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 are just scratching the surface, Whitley, and and we believe that um, there is a. You know, we talk about the psych. We have a psychologist that talks about how there might be a massive amount of society that have seen these things and they've just suppressed them in their memories because of the fear that they, they had when they saw them, the fact that they couldn't rationalize what they were seeing. So we're just scratching the surface. You know, I once sat across a table at dinner from a man who 
proceeded to tell me what I think is the most extraordinary Bigfoot story I've ever heard. And I said, come on my show. We'll do this again. He said, oh, no, no, I don't want to. I would not go out in public with this. And I said, we won't even say your name. Yeah. We won't show your picture. No, no. He said, absolutely not. And the thing that was so amazing about this story, and this is true of some of the cases in your documentary too, is that the people living in the area where this man's experience occurred were used to Bigfoot. Bigfoot was part of their lives. Can I mean not not I mean not in the sense of sitting down with them at the dinner table, but you know, around a lot. Can you one of you, and I don't know which you just speak up, whichever one wants to talk. Tell us about some of the stories of people who are just sort of living with Bigfoot. Well, I'll take that one. And then, uh, Brett, you want to chime in? Um, Whitley, I got involved with this uh, phenomena back in the mid-2000s when my son and I stumbled on a single footprint, which we suspected was a hoax. But what we found out um, is that it's not always a hoax. These tracks are sometimes legitimate, and legitimate phenomena leaves them. That got uh, the kid in me um, awoken big time, and I ended up seeking out every witness I could, either by putting them in conferences or sitting down with them over a coffee. And I quickly came to realize that there are two types of witnesses, those who have the flesh and blood encounters that are generally very brief, and then these Sasquatch contactees or extended experiencers of Bigfoot. And their claims are extraordinary. They claim that not only do they have contact with Sasquatch, but they come to their house. Generally, they live in a rural circumstance where Sasquatch will come generally towards the evening or morning hour and leave these extraordinary gifts, um, leave these extraordinary examples of communication and stick forms. And very reminiscent of things I've heard alien contactees talk about where there is this almost relationship between certain entities or beings. And I kind of had to make a decision over this five-year hiatus with what kind of research I was going to do. So I fell uh, headlong down into the rabbit hole of seeking out these extended experiencers or Sasquatch contactees and found out that their claims are true. And how do I know they're true? Well, I myself am now one. And that's when Brett uh, reached out to me and Jill um, Snyder, And that's how I got involved with this uh, production. And now they're um, falling down the rabbit hole. <laughs> so it's been an interesting couple of years. I mean, the production of this has been over COVID. So we've had a lot of time to think about how to do this documentary because there hasn't been much else to do. But um, it's been incredible getting to know all these other witnesses and working alongside with them. But yeah, there's a lot more to uh, the Al Moon story, as you mentioned earlier, and we can get into that later if we have time. Well, um, yeah, you just said, you said so much. I want to, you've become a Bigfoot witness was the biggest thing you said. We can't leave that behind a minute. We got to know what, you, what happened to make you a Bigfoot witness. Well, what's better than being a witness is not seeking out to be a witness because it almost gets in the way of pursuit of communication. So you kind of have to think about this kind of like in a Tai Chi sort of way where you're just kind of becoming one with the phenomena and saying, okay, I believe it exists. Now I just kind of want to lean back and let the phenomena 
come to me. I learned that through the author, Tom Powell. He said, you know, don't go chasing after him. Just sit back and let the phenomena come to you. So um, in short, there was a ranch house in the small town of Cottage Grove, Oregon, where a recent retiree basically said, I think there's phenomena at my house. I know you're a researcher 30 mm -hmm. minutes away. Do you want to move in and do the Jane Goodall approach? Only, you know, this place is bonkers. It's not just, you know, monkeys walking around my property. We got a lot of other phenomena. And I had to uh, approach this almost the same position that the people at Skinwalker Ranch did, that this was a window area where the phenomena would have presented itself with Bigfoot kind of as the base layer. And yes, we are all witnesses of one sort or another, but there are all these other layers where the phenomena came in from the sky, it came in through poltergeists, it came in through strange lights, it came in through uh, animal mutilation. So all that other stuff uh, we're saving for part two of this documentary uh, that's in, under production now. But um, we broached the subject um, towards the end of chapter one. Yeah, and it's a huge subject because uh, there's something very weird going on here. Very weird. Mm. It's more than just a, a a very clever species of of uh, hominid. I don't say ape. I'm saying hominid. And folks, I'll ask them, and they will tell you why I would say that because I've learned something from their documentary. It's why. But in any case, it's more than that. But before we go on, uh, tell us why you know. This is a hominid of some kind, even if it has an array of paranormal and poltergeist-like activity around it. Uh, why, why do we now know this is a hominid? In the human line, in other words, not in the primate line, ape line. I'll, t I'll tackle that for a second there, Whitley. So part of the reason why we know it's a hominid is because of the, the analysis that's been done to the Patterson-Gimlin film. And um, we talk about this in, in the documentary. Dr. Meldrum talks about this. And Henry Franzoni talk about this. And what's really cool is the fact that they shot this movie in 16 millimeter film. And 16 millimeter film is very high quality. So it would be the equivalent of having a high definition camera in the 1960s recording this. And in other words, what we're able to do now with technology is we're able to get a really good, clear 4K scan so that we can start really analyzing this footage. And we're seeing things that we've never seen before. And some of those things that we're seeing puts this into more of a hominid category than it does an ape category. You know, the initial knee-jerk reaction is that it's an ape because it looks kind of like an ape. But, you know, the truth of the matter is, Humans are apes. So I suppose you could say it's an ape, but in, in all actuality, you know, the descriptions of it by, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of eyewitnesses are that it's more human-like. You know, we've got hunters looking through the sights of their guns, getting ready to shoot this thing, and they can't squeeze the trigger because it looks too much and feels too much like a human. So um, it's just, it's one experience after another, but the proof in my opinion, and the evidence for the existence of Bigfoot is right there in the Patterson-Gimlin film. Now, you, you mentioned uh, in passing there, you've had people, many people have had these things in their gun sights. Now, I know people who would shoot a human in a heartbeat. So I have to ask, uh, why hasn't one ever been shot or has that happened and we don't know about it? 
It's happened. It's happened. And I think it's happened more than we do know about it. Um, there's a story about a, um, a guy that shot one in Northern California. Um, and apparently he was enumerated. He came across one. He also came across the, uh, a child, a juvenile Bigfoot. He shot them both. And when he came back to get them with the truck and his buddies, the bodies were gone. Um, but that's been a pretty, which, which pretty much verified that that that's happened. Um, I know some folks that know this guy. Um, I was down in Bluff Creek, uh, where the Patterson Gimlin footage was taken about a month ago, and and I was with a gentleman that knew him, and had heard the story firsthand from him. So it has happened. Um, and I also want to stress too, this is a perfect time for this, is that. You know, there's a lot of these things that people question, you know, why, why do we have photographs of them? Why don't we have bodies and stuff like that? And, you know, there's some pretty reputable people out there that have some extremely strong evidence that the media is just ignoring. And, and therefore, people just don't know about it. But it's out there. You know, that gets me to the question of the media and why in the world is there all of this unbelievably intense denial about this? You can't get this on CBS News. You couldn't get it on CBS News if you had a Bigfoot staring you in the face in high def, I don't think. Why not? What is going on here? Um, I'll tackle that real quick as well. I, you know, I think there's a, a variety of reasons for it. I, one, of the, one of the biggest reasons, in my opinion, we cover this in the documentary is there's an economic um, reason behind it all, especially here in the Pacific Northwest where, you know, there's, there's tens, hundreds of millions of dollars to be made in recreation, outdoor sports. I think if people knew for a fact that there was an apex predator out there that was eight to 10 feet tall, uh, they might think twice about recreating and going out in the woods. And, and that's true across the country. I mean, there's a huge Bigfoot population in Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Tennessee, um, you know, all up and down the West Coast. Washington State is the number one state in the union for sightings. So I think that that's that's part of it. I think the other part of it is an underlying fear because it really kind of screws up everything, uh, you know, from religion to politics to to the environment. And I know Tobes probably got something to add to that. Yeah, I mean, it, the the control that they would lose over the narrative telling the story of Sasquatch, if Sasquatch let them tell the story at all, that's the part of this that we kind of leave out, is that the phenomena, be it UFOs or poltergeists or cryptids, seem to be in control of the narrative. And somehow we, we think that we can change that. And even though we look through the annals of time and we see evidence that they've controlled the narrative for eons, um, I was naive to the money issue. And I think Brett's right. I think, you know, if humans can find a way to make a buck off of this, they'll start to release the data that they think they control in order to manipulate it to grow their wealth for nations. And I think that's probably why we're hearing about UFOs right now is that there's some money angle to this that we're overlooking. The giggle factor for Sasquatch is twice that of people that uh, are UFO witnesses now because the Pentagon hasn't backed Sasquatch. They're back right. the UFO narrative. However, it does open up a change, a changing of the guard. I mean, a lot of these Bigfooters, you know, unfortunately are in their late seventies and eighties. And um, there's a new Bigfooter, you know, that's at presentation. And these Bigfooters, a lot of them, 
have grown up thinking that there's a cross-contamination of phenomena between the supernatural and Sasquatch. So most conferences have a supernatural angle. You wouldn't have seen that in the 90s and the early 2000s really at all. But now it's a moneymaker to have all those people show up. But I think it's the right angle to have because the phenomena does present itself, especially with Bigfoot. If you're telling the true story, the history of Sasquatch, especially with these Sasquatch contactees or extended experiencers, it is a supernatural conversation, very similar to those who have had abduction experiences or UFO witnesses. And the reason that's true is because those types of phenomena present themselves while you're having a Sasquatch experience. And a lot of people that are in the, uh, you know, that go to UFO conferences have no idea how close both of these phenomena are. In fact, I just talked to a guy the other day that was uh, taken at a two hour conversation with this guy, even Brett knows him. And uh, he was regressed and on the aircraft or on the vehicle he was on in a brightly lit room, he was shown a hybrid species. And I know this is going down the rabbit hole of him um, and his offspring, which was a hybrid Sasquatch. Very serious guy, uh, financially secure, no reason to uh, publicize his name, but told me in private, this is the information he's getting back through hypnotic regression. So I hear these stories, they're just stories. And I'm not trying to prove anything to anybody here. Um, I, what I'm saying is you can have your own experience and uh, verify the facts by yourself if you want to take these steps in order to do it. Well, I, uh, yeah, I, you, you don't worry about going down the rabbit hole on this show, man. We're down <laughs> here. This is where we live. Right, We're, right, right, this right, is right. rabbit hole central. Yeah. Um, there's not, there in another show on the, on the internet that takes the rabbit hole so seriously, or I hope that explores it so carefully and without uh, prejudice and, uh, and so forth. But there is one prejudicial thing, Free Dreamlanders, it's going to happen right now, is you're going to look at some ads, and I, I regret this, and you do too, but, you know, you don't subscribe, so look at the ads and uh, see if they can't enthuse you into doing something, like buy a copy of the uh, communion audiobook or the, or the new edition of communion. And you'll find a, something truly beautiful in your life. We'll be right back. We're talking to Toby Johnson and Brett Eichenberger. Their website, BigfootDoc.com. That's BigfootDoc.com. We're talking about their remarkable Bigfoot documentary, A Flash of Beauty. And what... Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, th there are a lot of Bigfoot documentaries out there. What makes yours stand out? Why couldn't I stop watching it, for example? Which is true. <laughs> I, you know, I think that, that we, we took a look at, you know, Jill Remensnyder, the, the writer and producer and myself, we took a look at, at pretty much everything that was out there. And, and the one consistency that we saw was there was a lot of real-time footage out in the woods. And, and we felt like this space, if you will, was missing really good, credible eyewitness accounts. And it was missing the human factor. It was missing the emotional factor. And so, you know, one of the things you're going to see in our documentary versus any other 
you know, Bigfoot documentary is an interview with a Yale educated psychologist and a certified hypnotherapist who both talk about how the brain works and how the brain deals with seeing something that it can't process. You know, I mean, a lot of these individuals, in, in fact, all of these individuals, their life has been completely changed by what they've seen, regardless of whether it's an ongoing experience or it was a 10 second experience, whether they saw something walk across the road in front of them, you know, 50 yards in front of them, or they have something going on like what Daryl Adams has had going on in the Owl Moon lab. These are people that have been, uh, their whole foundation of reality has been shook and it's been shaken. And, you know, Rich Germeau is a great example of that. He was a law enforcement officer. He was on duty. He saw one walk across the road near a crowded beach in the middle of daylight, you know, broad daylight in summer. And, you know, he talks about, he says, he says, I'm looking at something that doesn't exist. And I know what it is, but I know it doesn't exist. How do we deal with that? How do, how do humans psychologically deal with that? So we, we get into that side of things. And the other thing, too, is that we want to humanize Bigfoot as well, because these are extremely intelligent beings. Um, and they have some talents that we're going to get into in the second chapter of A Flash of Beauty that are just absolutely mind-boggling. Um, so, you know, we want, to, we want to try and figure out what they have to offer. Um, do they have something to offer? What can we learn from them? What can they learn from us? Uh, so on and so forth. So there is a lot, I feel, in this film that really kind of separates us from anything else that's ever been out there before. You know, one thing I noticed in the documentary that kind of surprised me, uh, I, I think of this as, I mean, we think people like sort of on the outside looking in, think of Bigfoot as <laughs> sort of, you know, they look a certain way, uh, they're very elusive, uh, they're, but it turns out there are a lot of different forms. And I'm not talking about, you know, orbs and all of the, all of the paranormal phenomena that come with them but different forms of Bigfoot. Could one of you talk about a little bit about that? I was quite amazed. Well, from the Native American First Nation side, of course, that's probably the first place to start. That's where I started. And growing up here in the Pacific Northwest, you kind of have to start there. And there are, there are many names, uh, many different versions, but uh, you know, First Nations people all have a very generalized idea of Sasquatch that um, you know, they, they all generally look the same. However, they may react to what they see differently based upon their own tribal history. And the real fascinating part of the story is how these tribes share these stories through their oral, tra oral tradition. Um, author Henry Franzoni gets into that a little bit in the documentary where he talks about how the longhouses basically have a copyright to their story of Sasquatch that dare not lead the tribe to other tribes. They kind of own the copyright through that longhouse. So very fascinating trying to get those stories out of them regarding uh, individual Sasquatch phenomena. But, you know, for each Sasquatch idea is, is a separate name, like uh, Zonaqua or Tonaqua from the north near Vancouver, Canada. Down here near the Salish, we have uh, Sasquatch. I just got a new name the other day from uh, near the uh, Olympic forest of Titi, which is what the uh, Quileute tribe calls them. So you have all these different names, um, different reactions to Sasquatch. 
But then, of course, you have Sasquatch themselves changing uh, varieties geographically all across the world, including the Yeti um, and the Almas and the Russian version of Sasquatch and the Malaysian version of Sasquatch and, of course, our own Sasquatch and then the skunk ape of Florida. So, you know, it's very interesting watching, again, all these conferences happen around the world where they have variations of celebrating their version of Sasquatch, but pretty much we're talking about the same being. Um, The first really serious explorer of this was Tom Slick uh, from San Antonio, who happened to be a family friend. And so I was into this as a boy when Mr. Slick went off to to Tibet. You believe every single member of his social circle was absolutely riveted by the what might happen. And uh, of course he came back empty handed, but he never thought he, he never thought so. He, 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 he thought that there had been more there than they had been able to see. And his, his uh, niece, uh, Kathy Cook, uh, still one of my dearest friends. I mean, the families, San Antonio families are very close and uh, uh, went and, and re re went down his footsteps all the way, the, the whole expedition a few years ago, and didn't come across anything either, but still came back with that same eerie feeling. She said to me, Whitley, I felt watched. I felt watched, and I kept thinking to myself, I mean, she wasn't alone. She had a lot of Sherpas and so forth with her. Uh, and I kept thinking to myself, what is really going on here? Could they and I thought, I said to her, I wonder if they could perhaps at times be invisible. And I wonder if there's any of that in the in the lore that you guys came across. Could they be like, you know, we had the aliens come into our house very often. And, you know, they were invisible. Uh, the cats could see them. And, you know, the cats would watch something walking around the house. And, you know, we could hear faint creaks on the floor, you know, things. But we couldn't see anything. So talk to that. Is this, is this a possibility? You want that, Brett? Yeah, yeah. So, yes, it, it, it is a possibility. It is reality. Um, we've seen video of them, you know, cloaking and invisible. There's different phases of it, if you will. Um, they, I don't, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's if it's a biological thing or if it's um, has to do with the way that they're manipulating their um, their energy field or whatnot. We are we are going to really give a great explanation to how they might do it in the sequel. So stay tuned for that. This is it's cutting edge theory um, that you're not going to want to miss for the sequel. But it's it's definitely happening happening they're also able to morph we have a bunch of witnesses that have seen them morph into all kinds of different things anything from a squirrel i heard a squirrel the other day to balls of light like ball lightning to or orbs if you will to tree stumps uh we've had witnesses that have watched them walk into a tree we've heard that they use the tree trunks to recharge if you will um, the biggest question is, is that, you know, why did they become invisible and, and go back to flesh and blood? You know, um, 
it seems to me like they could be invisible the entire time if they wanted to. So does that mean that they're trying to show themselves to us on purpose? So yeah, it raises quite a bit of questions. There seems to be a, a supernatural issue to this that uh, is also spiritual in nature. And, you know, in the book, I call Bigfoot a land spirit. And there's a reason for that. They kind of call themselves a land spirit, I believe. Um, and so the spiritual nature of what Bigfoot is, um, is ignored, of course, by the flesh and blood community. Although privately, when you have an adult beverage with them and it's 11 o'clock at night and no one's around, they start talking about the spiritual nature of Sasquatch and um, these strange stories that Brett just related, including cloaking. I mean, there's nothing else in nature that I know of that is, you know, a hybrid of primate and human that can do what Bigfoot can do. That includes disappearing tracks that suddenly end in the middle of a snowdrift. That includes run up to someone in broad daylight and blow in their face. That includes walking up to their tent in the middle of the day and leaving extraordinary gifts on top of their boots. Um, in my case, picking up a tent and moving it 49 feet and moving it uh, on top of a tree. All these things uh, are- You weren't in it. Yeah, right. <laughs> not, not that time. But um, all these extraordinary claims uh, can be yours to have as your own personal adventure if you want to go out and experience this yourself. And I think there's a way to do that. Um, I always tell people to follow the same trail I did with author Henry Franzoni. And um, I really plug this guy because he is a pioneer that's overlooked. I think he likes it that way. But he told me early on, he says, if you want to experience a phenomena, go to the scary place names. You can find them on Google Earth. They're all over the world and North America is no different. And the crazier sounding the place name in a remote area like Spirit Lake or Demon Mountain or Ghost Ridge, those are Bigfoot hotspots. And that's where you put your tent for a week and you sit there and wait. And that's how I got to know the phenomenon was real. Wow. That's really fascinating and totally impressive. We're going to take a brief break for Free Dreamlanders. Uh, we are going to come back, and I want to know something about those gifts. That's a fascinating idea that they give gifts. What are the gifts? What's that like? What's that all about? We'll be right back for Free Dreamlanders subscribers. You're going to hear the answer right now. We're back. We're talking to Toby Johnson and Brett Eichenberger. Their website, BigfootDoc.com. More importantly, their document, their documentary, A Flash of Beauty. Guys, when can people see this? So A Flash of Beauty is available on Amazon. It's available on um, Google Play, Voodoo, iTunes. You can rent it on YouTube or Vimeo. Um, and I think you can get it on the Microsoft store as well. Wow. So there's a lot of places and it's a rental, right? Yep. Yeah. It's a rental or you can purchase it. We've had many people that have purchased it. And I, I can't tell you how many people have told us they've watched it three or four times um, in one day. So there's a lot. There's a it's, lot it's, it's hypnotic. It's a wonderful documentary. I loved it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now I promised my listeners before 
the free dreamlanders left the air and so the subscribers are waiting right now what about gifts that you told me about gifts and i was floored by that what kind of gifts do they give in the case of what happened with uh where i live this extraordinary place on the map called the al moon lab and the property owners the adams family uh, they invited me to live there and take uh, the paranormal Jane Goodall approach and and research the, their facility and interact with their property. I call it a facility. It wasn't a facility. It was about five acres in the middle of the woods. And um, it began with small sounds, to be honest. It began with an impression of knees that we cast. And we brought these knees down and had them examined as being something plus or minus 1,400 pounds from a human, which makes no sense. So um, these knee impressions seemed to initiate the sounds and the sounds were very simple. They were tapping sounds or they were wood hitting wood sounds. And they seemed to be coming from a specific spot on the property. So after I moved in, things seemed to amp up. And so what do we mean by gifts? Well, most of these gifts are gifts of significance. These are gifts that mean something to the person they're given to. So uh, that could be as simple as, in one of the cases where I was having cell phone trouble a few days after my cell phone broke down, it was a public com conversation that we're having on the property about my cell phone. Um, a cell phone was given to me and placed under the oar of my boat. Now these gifts are all the same. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, let's roll back here. Sure. A cell phone was, what kind of a cell phone? Sure. Uh, these, these are old gifts. They almost, in this case, this was about a 10 year old sidekick phone that you would have got in the mid nineties to early two thousands. The kind that slide up. With wow. That. I mean, uh, I'm saying, wow. I mean, this is, this is an amazing thing. It's not, I mean, because you, if you'd said, well, it was an uh, iPhone you know, right. brand new iPhone or something. I would right, have right. thought, oh, somebody did that. Sure. But not that. It's, it gave you an old phone that they had maybe picked up somewhere and they kept and just had. Well, yeah. I mean, you've seen the documentary and we're not spoiling it by saying, you know, there's a footage even in the trailer of Sasquatch going in, into the town dump and being seen leaving in and out of this public dump. Well, these gifts have all the you know patina of them as something that has been found and aged like in a dump or an old campsite and there's so many uh examples of this of uh, things that either the witness has just talked about or needed or thought of that they suddenly unexpectedly get sometimes inside their house uh one of those uh moments happened when a large boulder was sitting in the middle of the persian rug uh after the property owners went out for the evening uh, just to kind of let them know that they can come inside as well. So what is this phenomena that can do that? I, well, I don't believe it's just Bigfoot. Although I believe there's extraordinary things they can do. My take is that when you invite or initiate the phenomena, especially when you start to exchange gifts and food, um, that is an invitation for other things to come around and there's this revolving door of phenomena, and it can present itself in any manner of ways from Bigfoot to UFO experiences to ghosts and everything in between. So those are the kind of the beginning gifts that um, I was familiar with. It's absolutely fascinating. 
uh, I'm really sort of bowled over by it. I, uh, uh, because it's not something. And when I watched the documentary, I thought to myself, I made a note gifts with two, two lines under it, but it's just a wild story that I would like to now get back to these different shape shifting phenomena and so forth and ask, a kind of a weird off the wall question that I assure you no other podcaster will ask you that. uh, And it's this one of the close encounter witnesses, Betty Andreasen repeated some words in what she thought was a star language, but when she was under hypnosis, but I recognized it as a form of Gaelic and I had it translated. And the translation is children of the Northern peoples, you wander in eternal darkness. And when I look at the world around us, at the artifacts from the ancient world, like this strange uh, stonework in, in South America or the gigantic platform at, uh, in, in Baalbek in, in uh, the Middle East, or for that matter, the pyramids themselves, I think to myself, Somebody once knew a lot more about this world than we do. Somebody could do things we can't do. And there's no way you can convince me of anything else because this is true. Now, you tell me about all of these remarkable things that they can do with themselves. They don't need machines. I mean, they are beyond they're, they're, they're not pre-technological at all. They're post-technological. Have we fallen somehow? Are we somehow the lesser species? Are they actually a more advanced species than us? Either one of you can chime Go in. Go ahead, Brett. Obviously, yeah, I'm, exactly. not, I'm, not, I'm not making rules here. I know, I know, I know Tobe's got some things to say too, so I'll be brief, but um, yes, absolutely, Whitley, absolutely to answer your question. And I have heard from some folks that have had mind speak interactions with these beings that they have told them, they've told the humans that they're disappointed in the humans because we are materialistic, we are consumers, we are driven by money, we've completely lost touch with the world. And this is obvious in, in, in how we're destroying the planet right now, in my opinion, because that's that's a greed factor. We're not and we're still not paying attention. Um, you know, this is happening right now, right outside my house right now. It's 100 degrees in Portland, Oregon, which is very rare. So, um, you know, they have voiced this to many, many people through MindSpeak. And I think you're exactly right when you say post-technological. They are so far advanced that they are able to do anything at any time that they want to, including visiting other dimensions. And I'll let Tobe take it from there. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, You know, we're trying to copy what they can do with nature. They're so at one with nature. And I don't want to come off as, you know, new agey. You know, in fact, Oftentimes that point of view is hard for me to stomach, but there is something so new agey about Bigfoot. They are one 
with the land around them. And technology is like putting a sliver in the hand. They sense it, they feel it a mile away. They seem to know, A, the human's intention, but then when you have technology, uh, they can utilize that technology at their own will uh, by shutting it off or manipulating it or embedding it with a message. There's examples of them utilizing a cell phone to embed video with no timestamp or date to hijack it and utilize encoded messages, which are incredible examples of possibly what they can do. But yet I don't think this is just Bigfoot doing this. I think they have help from others when they're able to do this. So, you know, I just think about humanity. How could we exploit that ourselves and use and weaponize Sasquatch? I think that's a, that may be an incredible statement to make, but I'm certain that people in dark places have thought that very same thought because they can pinpoint a person in a crowd and they can bring them to their knees. You know, that sounds like the riot LRAD gear where they point a low frequency device and separate a crowd. Um, where they get that technology? Is that through back engineering? But to get back to your point, um, they don't need technology because th we're handicapped by it. Uh, that's something that they can do on their own. There's certainly scripture about that, uh, where they talk, you know, Christ talks to the disciples and tells them, you know, walking on water is no big deal. You could do that too if you had people of faith. And so there's a religious component to this as well. And we so lost touch with that. And uh, they, there seems to be ways to access them through altering our consciousness through music or through substances or through meditation and especially drumming. And uh, that seems to bring on our ability to access them in between these worlds where they can help us remember these facts. But to be honest, I haven't moved into that territory because I'm, I don't know if I'm fully ready. Uh, you know, as close as I've come to getting close to Bigfoot, uh, I haven't taken the soul journey yet of it. All right. We have a, a situation here where it may be that we are the ones who have kind of fallen off the wagon here, that we are actually dealing with reality in a much more primitive way than Bigfoot is. And, you know, one of the things, one of the visitors, I mean, God knows when this happened. I wish I could give you exact details, folks. I asked, what is happening to mankind? Because we're obviously in terrible trouble. Uh, there's, I mean, And I was going to ask you about fires and Bigfoot in a minute. I'll do that. The answer is, you will return to the forest, which was pretty awesome. And I thought to myself, will there be a forest to return to? And that gets me to this question. What about all of these forest fires? A lot of them are taking place in Bigfoot country. What does that mean, guys? That's a great question. Um, we interviewed a psychic uh, who was going to be in the first film. And uh, this individual, Tara, she has had contact with uh, the Bigfoot in the, um, in the central Oregon region. And I asked her to ask them, what do they do you know, with forest fires? The state of Oregon was an inferno 
in September of 2020. It was the worst forest fires we've had in our history. I mean, we lost probably 2 million acres of forest land. And, you know, we had just started doing the documentary at that point. We were about two months into it. And that was all that occupied our minds was if there's, if these guys are out there, what are they doing in these infernos and these, these forest fires? And um, Tara's response was that they're okay. They're able to avoid them. They're, they're able to leave them. And so, and that's all I got from her. That's all she got from them. Um, Tobe might have some more insight on that, but, but that's, that's what I've heard. In September of 2020, I attempted to go back to the Owl Moon Lab on my own and do a solo overnight. The access road was closed by a local timber company. So I went south uh, near an area that I'd known previous, about an hour away, and I got into uh, another situation where the road was closed, and I could actually see the fire billowing down the mountain towards the creek but I could still camp there. So I put my tent there like a crazy person and just, um, I actually think it's quite a beautiful smell to be honest. And so I sat there as the fire kind of came down through the acreage and the smoke got a little heavier through the evening. And as soon as I got out my hammock, I uh, was in the back of my Subaru and I didn't have my recorder out yet. And out of those smoky clouds, I heard, in my opinion, without a doubt, a Sasquatch singing. And it was a female voice. It lasted for about seven seconds. It was less than 50 yards away. And, um, you know, it was very reminiscent to Ron Moorhead Sierra sounds, except it was female and it was very sing-songy. It didn't sound scared to me. It didn't sound as though it was trying to warn me or in pain or anything like that. I know that's just a small example However, every human I know was running down that mountain, including the animals. So I think they're able to access different uh, modes of transportation. They don't seem to worry about the things that we worry about, including uh, people trying to kill them. Um, so not quite sure what to think about Bigfoot in that respect, but I do know what I heard. And I think that was a, a sing-songy female Bigfoot in the midst of a wildfire. Wow. And you have to think that, you know, well, if they, you know, I, my listeners know that I have had a lot of experience moving back and forth between universes. I'm, 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 I have to admit, I'm a fairly unusual guy. I can't, I can't get away from that. And uh, there is another reality right here. The last time I was engaged with it was uh, yesterday afternoon. And I can't walk into it usually. I can't go into it. I have done that a couple of times, but I can't stay when I go. And uh, I, I can see into it quite easily. And it's not like this. It's, it's, it's an earthly reality, but it is, it's, it's, it's a world in which things like the Ice Age have, hasn't ended. In other words, whatever went wrong here didn't go wrong there. And I think that's where they're coming from. I think that's where their home is. And they come here possibly to help us, maybe. But what about the disappearances? Let's talk about that. Is there anything to the concept that Bigfoot disappears people? 
And folks, we're gonna, for the, in the lat, latter part of the show, the third half hour, we're going to go very deeply into the next, we're going to tease, if you will, the next part of this documentary, because we're going to go much more deeply into this. But at the same time, this documentary, watching this is a huge eye-opener because it it isn't like, you know, the ones, you see the ones on uh, various channels and, the, you know, they're always kind of fuzzy Bigfoot footage that somebody got. And this is people telling their stories face-to-face with you. And it changes your mind. It changes you in profound ways. But what about this possibility that they move back and forth? Oh, no, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm going on a little bit here. I guess I'm too excited about this. This is such a wonderful, wonderful experience to talk to you guys. Uh, what about the disappearances? Is, is there something connected there? That's a great question, Whitley. And my response is, I don't know. I personally don't know. I think there is a connection. I think um, I don't know if it's a nefarious connection. I don't know if if people have been shown paradise and they've chosen not to return. It's like Roy Neary in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You know, he gets on the UFO and he takes off and, and that's that, you know, that whatever it is that's on the other side might be so wonderful that, that, that folks might see it as a new lease on life. Who knows? Um, I do know that there are some strange and mysterious circumstances out there that uh, really are really big head scratchers. You know, David Pilates covers all this uh, to a certain extent. Now he doesn't allege that it's Bigfoot. But David Pilates is a former Bigfoot researcher, so there could be a right. connection. Well, there there are mysterious disappearances for sure. Tobe, I'm so, Toby, sure. I'm sorry, I, I interrupted you. No, I was going to agree with that fact, but there is this type of humanity to where we have to allow for evil. And I think that uh, there probably are evil Bigfoot, just like there seems to be John Wayne Gacy's and Ted Bundy types. There are psychopaths. And I've heard from... Sasquatch contactees that uh, there indeed are and they do horrible things to not only humans but animals um, and so we need to allow for that conversation a lot of times at these conferences they do not allow for there to be any negativity towards the forest people I think that's a mistake because we need to allow for that with humanity and there is this humanity to Bigfoot an uncomfortable amount of humanity with them. There's, it seems to be language, culture, expressions of humanity, giving. And I think we need to allow for bad behavior. We had small examples of that at the property, but we were able to basically have a one-on-one conversation with the trees and change the direction of the phenomenon. In this case, in this case, it was property damage. However, we did have animal mutilations and, and kills as well, but that seemed to be more of a um, us kind of a misunderstanding or a bad sense of humor, perhaps on their, on their <laughs> bad <end>. sense of humor. <laughs> so uh, I have to remember that. <laughs> right. I, I, I don't know how else to uh, put it. It's a little bit of a long story, but when it comes to missing people, it's a whole different story. We're talking about your neighbors that suddenly vanish in Bigfoot hotspots. And that's what the likes of Pilates is talking about. He was a previous Bigfoot researcher who suddenly started looking into missing people because they were missing in hot spots areas of Bigfoot. And um, that's a fact. And that's something that, uh, you know, we need to be able to talk about at length. Why would that be? 
Is Sasquatch fully responsible for those disappearances? I don't think so. I think other entities and beings might be placing blame on the more popular, you know, cryptological creature and kind of stepping back, you know, in the, in the, in the perp line and saying, yeah, of course, <laughs> blame it on him. But um, yeah, strange stories for sure. Toby Johnson and Brett Eichenberger, BigfootDoc.com. You can rent it. You can buy it. It is called Flash of Beauty. You'll find it on Amazon, all kinds of different places. It is really worth your time, folks. It, this is serious stuff. This is beautiful stuff. The Flash of Beauty is not only this new concept and new vision of Bigfoot, and not, not a sweet vision. This is not a new age film. Don't get me wrong there. Uh, but it's also beautifully done. And Free Dreamlanders, I would like to thank you as always for being with us and urge you as always to subscribe. Subscribers, uh, Toby's talked a little bit about a rabbit hole in this show. Well, I've got the rabbit hatch to that rabbit hole wide open. And when we come back, we're going deep. Okay, subscribers, uh, we're going right on now. A little deeper, a lot deeper. I promised you a ride down the rabbit hole. And these two guys are going to take us down a rabbit hole that has no bottom. Believe me, I've been discussing this with them a little bit. And uh, the second part of this documentary the second volume of it is called a flash of beauty paranormal bigfoot now it's important to watch both so get into this and this is a sort of a tease of what is going to happen next but uh one of the things that surprised me we were talking off the air and Toby happened to mention, uh, I, of course, am beset by gremlins in this office, electronic gremlins, which have had, been working overtime on this show. As you know, shows about things like Bigfoot, uh, official secrets, and the dead, especially the dead, all of these things. Anything about paranormal Bigfoot, there's going to be a lot of electronic interference. So it's been pretty weird around here in the past few minutes, you'd be amazed. Anyway, Toby mentioned that the Air Force has worked on uh, gremlins, electronic gremlins. And of course, they would be real interested in that because they're, they're flying these, these electronic marbles that are just must be heaven on earth for, or heaven above earth for gremlins. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've learned, Toby? You know, this, uh, this harkens back to uh, the episode of Twilight Zone. And, um, oh, Captain Kirk was in that episode when he looked out the bay window. Of course, everyone knows the recreation that happened in Twilight Zone, the movie, where there was this monster ripping away at the wiring on, yeah. the, uh, on the passenger jet. I had no idea as a kid that that was based in some kind of uh, military lore of electronics going awry with uh, the Air Force. In fact, so much so that we actually went to um, investigate the Tonopah airfield outside of Tonopah, Nevada, due to gremlin sightings at that abandoned air station. 
Uh, also, they reported Sasquatch sightings. But again, I thought it was just more fancy lore and good uh, campfire stories. However, there are Air Force patches uh, dedicated to the Gremlin phenomena uh, attached to certain bases. Um, I've interviewed uh, a witness that has a top secret clearance, uh, has seen very strange things in the sky over nuke facilities, actually here in Washington. And um, again, he brought up the, the fact of Gremlins. And I said, what'd you say? And he was really shocked that I hadn't really looked into the phenomena. So my question to your audience is, what do you know? Um, I'm coming to this uh, totally new. Um, and is that connected to the Sasquatch phenomena? Probably because I think everything's kind of commingled when you get into Bigfoot. You have to prepare yourself to go down these rabbit holes. And um, uh, it seems like the gremlin might be attached to this, certainly electronic phenomena having issues in and around Bigfoot phenomena is a big thing, including battery drain, including digital hijacking, things of that sort. So, um, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I should say so. Uh, now, tell us a little bit more about the description of, did they actually, are you talking about someone who actually saw entities that looked to him like gremlins? Or, uh, <laughs> No, I, in fact, I don't have a witness description based upon that. All I know is what pop culture has done on our behalf to paint them as scary individuals that wreak havoc. It reminds me a lot of, you know, the trickster element that the Native Americans talk about. Yet again, we have something like a puckwudgie or a stick Indian, something that kind of wreaks havoc on normal life. Yeah. I don't think there is a, a specific on what a gremlin really looks like if they exist at all. But certainly gremlin type behavior is something that uh, is indicative of poltergeist and Sasquatch. Now, when we get into Sasquatch, I, let me ask you this. Either one of you guys can answer this. Is there any connection between Sasquatch, Sasquatch sightings and bases that have had a lot of this activity around them? In other words, uh, oh, are there Sasquatch oh, sightings in the same areas? Yes. Yes, there are. And I'll jump in here real quick. Um, yes, I've heard stories about Sasquatch um, on a base up near Seattle um, in Tacoma, Washington, at Fort Lewis. Um, I've heard um, stories of Sasquatch in other military bases. Uh, there's some people that say that these some of these bases, you know, cover uh, hundreds, maybe thousands of acres or square miles, even some of them. Yeah, some of them are huge. Huge, yeah, and and the, it becomes kind of a reserve for the military. Uh, we were recently told a story uh, that took place up in New York about um, one that got away and was captured by the military. So yeah, I mean, the accounts are certainly out there that these things are on military bases, whether they're part of the military or whether they're just seeking refuge. I'm not sure. I can't can't go that far. Well, of course, you know, they're the, the bases. You, you're not going to be hunting and wandering around on any bases. So it might be that they that's exactly you know, they might be they might be full of them. You know, you know, you never know. But guys, my impression is they come and go. You know, we were talking in the earlier about the amazing some of the amazing characteristics you talked to them about and in walking into tree trunks and stuff why don't we go over that a little bit more carefully as to what their attributes are that would 
seem to us to be paranormal, bearing in mind that on this show, we don't believe in the paranormal. We believe in nature, some parts of which we understand, some parts of which we do not. So and go ahead. I want yeah, to jump in here real quick, Whitley. You nailed it. This is exactly what our sequel is about, making the paranormal, the paranormal normal. And part of the reason we're titling the film Paranormal Bigfoot is to get people into the film. Because that's that's what people understand this phenomenon to be is paranormal, but it it is backed by science. And you know, I sent Tobe uh, an interview last night, a rough interview that we shot a couple of weeks ago with a scientist who will be making um, an appearance in our sequel, who is looking at some some theories that have been proven by you know results in the lab that are showing how these things might work. And um, there's really some fascinating components to it, such as dark matter, dark energy, um, obviously some electromagnetic um, connections. There have, and I just want to point out, there have been many sightings of Bigfoot and cryptids near power lines or places of great power. I had a conversation just yesterday with a man out here in Oregon who had all kinds of different sightings of Bigfoot near power lines. And he said, I saw other things too. So, and then we've got another guy that we're going to be interviewing soon who has, I'm not even going to tease it, but it was, it was one of the most extraordinary sightings I have ever heard in my life. And he watched it all unfold underneath the power line. So they're using these power lines as some sort of a super highway to either get around and or regenerate and or who knows, but there is, there is a science to this. We're just not uh knowledgeable in what that science is and i feel like every single day we get closer and closer to finding out how this stuff works yeah i think we alluded earlier to the idea that there is a lost science that we don't we've lost track of but they probably knew about in the distant past and apparently these beings haven't lost it because this is not a science that involves little machines or the cell phones and stuff. This is a science that comes from within. And, you know, when you see a Bigfoot do something bizarre, like disappear before your eyes or walk into a tree uh, and disappear that way, you're seeing the operation of someone, the actions of someone who is, has, still has mastery of a science that it was, we either lost or was taken from us. Do you guys have any thoughts about which might it might be? I mean, this is sort of an awful wall, the wall question for you. I know, mm-hmm. but you're so deep into this. I think it might be an interesting one to see what you think about. Well, I'll, I'll mention this to Brett and to you, Whitley. I watched this interview for the first time yesterday of um, who's going to be in part two. And the one thing that stuck out, if I could bring it home as what the scientist is trying to say in a compact way is that Sasquatch seems to have mastery over something that is a constant force and make it a variable. That is to say, we think of the radio station as a fixed dial. We hear one tune, however, they can flip that dial any way they want and have any melody played for them. So in nature, they're flipping that dial constantly to do incredible, st- incredible things, including what witnesses describe, you know, turn into balls of light, walk through the trees, cloak, come very close to you, uh, interact with you, um, 
come to you in a dream state, come and go as they please behind locked doors, uh, trans medium type stuff that we hear mainly about through UFO news, through Luis Elizondo. However, when you're talking about UFOs, it's very much in the same vein as talking about a high tech or um, a lost discipline. And so uh, these stories are very credible. Most Bigfooters will tell you that power lines and rock quarries are key places to have Bigfoot encounters. Now they chalk it up to um, two different things that when you're looking for big game, you look for them underneath a power line because they're accessing it because it's an open highway for them to move about and feed. Uh, however, there's not been a lot of sightings of elk and deer feeding underneath power lines as far as what I've been told. They say rock quarries are places for Sasquatch to appear because of the advantage of being elevated. Um, however, the encounters that usually happen near rock quarries are just like all the other encounters, curious, uh, not hostile, and sometimes supernatural with balls of light seen there. So uh, those are the kind of things that I'm familiar with as far as the Al Moon story. We've, both, we've had interactions in both of those places and had incredible interactions in both of those places. Uh, the most I've come away with evidence that it's not just an EMF spike causing us to have a mass hallucination and somehow all reacting to an event that didn't happen is the Bonneville power dam that runs the power line from Oregon to California has admitted that they have anomalous drains at certain times of day that are, are unaccounted for, uh, which aren't during peak times when people are accessing the power. So that's a bit of, you know, evidence, I guess, that something is happening on their level. I'd be curious to whether or not there's actual power spike happening, but uh, very interesting to think that there's consistency with those two phenomena. Now, you have written the Owl Moon Lab, which is about this whole, it's a whole series of books, actually, that is about the paranormal relationship and Bigfoot. Can you tell us a little bit about that series, that book series? Well, it's uh, one of one. Um, it is uh, the first book and the only book about the subject matter, but it's an interactive book, which maybe there's a bit of confusion. As you read through the testimony and the story of, you know, basically my origin story going up to uh, the strange house in Cottage Grove, where the Adams family allowed me to research this uh, ranch of theirs, uh, there's interactive QR codes within the book itself. So as you read along, you can go scan your phone and go to the point of evidence where there's video and audio and uh, forensic data available from, from that case there. But all in all, it, uh, it points out towards what we're looking into the paranormal Bigfoot that, you know, the paranormal is a catch-all phrase for the public to digest. And that's why it's, you know, a the Owl Moon Paranormal Experiment is the tagline. And I had to use that. And we have to call these things this because we don't really have a good enough name outside of the paranormal to describe this. However, the interview I watched last night uh, is broaching on some new verbiage that is totally exciting to uh, utilize around a campfire with people that have these uncomfortable experiences with the supernatural because the likes of people that use Newtonian science that uh, you know are in these universities that are afraid to use the word paranormal will now have a comfortable word like they do for Bigfoot. They have the relic hominid now instead of Bigfoot. They can call it uh, you know, an unknown hominid of some kind. I think they'll be able to do that the same with orbs. Um, 
perhaps as soon as next year, based on what I watched last night. So it's really exciting. You agree, Brett? Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. And I, I also want to talk a little bit about nature in general. And I would ask anybody that, you know, if, if a human could shoot out electricity to defend himself, would that be considered paranormal? I think it would be. It's, it sounds superhuman. It sounds like a superhero, right? Well, we have animals in the animal kingdom that can do just that. We also have animals that generate their own light. Could you imagine if humans grew light bulbs at the end of their fingers so they could see in a dark hallway? There are certain things in the animal kingdom that seem normal to us because we're used to it. We're, you know, we were okay with the idea that, that birds can, can compute, uh, you know, complex algorithms and stuff from, you know, to get themselves from Alaska to South America, um, so on and so forth. Infrasound uh, is something that a Bigfoot has been reported to do. Elephants do it. Tigers do it. So this paranormal really is just a mindset. It's really about us getting familiarized with the science behind it, um, getting familiarized with um, some of the terminology, which can start getting pretty complex. I think Tobe would agree after watching it the interview last night. Um, so it's going to take some time for this to be normalized, I think. But it, it, you feel it will be. Uh, I yes. Think that, yeah, because I'm, I'm, I know a, a lot of people in the academic and scientific communities who are trying to do the same thing with the UFO and close encounter phenomena to basically uh, find terminology that enables the broader uh, intellectual community to deal with the ideas without having to uh, risk their careers, which is totally insane to me. I mean, where, where, where have we, how far have we fallen when someone can, with a brilliant career, can risk everything by simply expressing interest in something like this? It's amazing. It's amazing. And it's no wonder we don't get anywhere fast. Um, the, uh, so the, now, what are I, one of the things we haven't actually done yet, and we should have done probably earlier, but I want to do now is to go over, a, 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 to kind of make a list of some of the more commonly seen and experienced paranormal phenomena around Bigfoot. Uh, like, for example, I've heard an awful lot of stories of people feel, having very strange sensations, feelings when they're around Bigfoot. And it's, that's reflected in some of the witness testimony in your documentary in, the, in uh, uh, Flash of Beauty. You, can you either you speak to that? Go ahead, Brent. Okay. Yeah, so, you go, go for it. <laughs> right, I'll go. <laughs> um, well, there's lots of examples. Um, I write about one in particular underneath the power line and shortly uh, after we walked underneath this power line, there was a group of six of us. Um, it was around 1130 at night in an area where there was a recent sighting. And in short, what happened is a group of six turned into a group of two within a couple of hours. And one by one, people were having uh, expressing opinions. And these were people that were involved in management positions and emergency services, um, running down the mountain saying they want me to go home. I shouldn't have brought a gun. I'm going to cry. Um, why am I going to throw up? Oh my God, they're right there. And meanwhile, the two of us that remained on the mountain saw nothing. 
So that was, that was early on in my experiences and it always stayed with me. And in fact, it stayed with every one of those people that are on that mountain that day. And they stand by that story that something directed them to go down. Now, what was interesting about that is everybody that was sent down the mountain had a gun on them. And I've heard this before from people that say they have mind speak, that they are very curious why we bring weapons and what we're going to do with weapons. So if that's the case, then they are very concerned about death or they're concerned about injury to some degree, um, be it for their young, be it for ourselves, be it for our, our ego or our fear. Uh, so that, that was my, uh, my experience with that. Now, you know, when you look across the spectrum of evidence, Bigfoot physical evidence, you find it's really very small. And yet there are so many sightings that you would think we would find skeletons, we would find, and we discussed this briefly earlier, we would find nests, we would find all kinds of things. And after all, there have been people shooting at them for years, speaking of guns. Some of them are bound to have connected. And yet we don't find anything. And earlier you made reference to bodies that, 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 that were shot, Bigfoot that were shot, and they came back to pick them up and they were gone. Uh, do they even live here? Is this their home? Or are they coming in here from somewhere else? And if uh, what, give me some thoughts about that. This is, is this not uh, uh, ground zero for them? That's a great question. Um, some points point to yes, that this is their home. Some points point to no. If it's not their home, they spent a significant amount of time here. Some of the structures that have been found have been theorized to be birthing areas and or nurseries. Um, so if that's the case, then I think that, that you know some of them are permanently here. There could be tribes or clans that that you know, use earth as a vacation home or this dimension as a vacation home, if you will. Um, who knows? You know, that's, that's, that's a, that's one that's, I think is really kind of throwing a curve at us. Um, you know, if, if the other dimension is so great, then why bother coming here? You know, is there a different kind of food source here? That's a, well, that's, it's a tough one. You know, you're talking to somebody who's been in the other dimension, not in, in our other dimension physically a number of times. And I will tell you from personal experience, it has immense appeal. I love, there's a place I can go. And because of the way my brain works, I can see it. I can't go into it except occasionally, but I can see it. I want to do that. And not only that, they don't necessarily like me doing that on the other side. There's been reactions. So I know it exists because I live with it. It's part of my life. And I can well understand that they might like to come into this dimension because it has such a, it's an appealing thing to do. It's, it's, I, I would say it not exactly that it's fun, but that there's something, well, incredibly beautiful about it. That was why I was so drawn to your decision to make your show, your documentary called A Flash of Beauty, because I think you guys sense that somewhere. 
Mm-hmm. You're aware of that. Have either of you ever had extra dimensional experiences? Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. But you know what? There, there, there are definitely certain times where you think back to an occasion that was odd or strange and you wonder, you know, there's, there's certainly been some uh, situations in the producing of this documentary mm. where we've been out in the field and things have felt off you know, off by maybe 20 degrees. I, I don't know how else to put it or how else to say it, but just there's just a feeling in the air. Nothing is going right. Um, and you just get that sense that, that you know, you're being observed and something is different. And um, I don't know. I, you know, I, 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 was, I was just thinking when you were talking to your, you're talking about the other dimensions too, Whitley, that somebody described to me that, going into another dimension is not unlike scuba diving or jumping into water. You know, we we're, we're, you know, land living animals that breathe oxygen. And when you go into water, it's a whole different experience, everything. There's nothing that's the same as, as being on land. So I, you know, I think if people are struggling to kind of understand the difference in this dimension, that might be a kind of a, a gateway into it. The reason I ask is that if we could go back and forth, we might be able to vastly expand the experience of being human, not to mention escape if this planet starts to go to hell in a handbasket, which it looks like it could do. But uh, so far, so bad. I, you know, they, My experiences of when I go voluntarily, when I'm taken, that's another story. They're perfectly happy with that. But when I go voluntarily... I'm forcing the issue. They don't like it. And, and, uh, hmm. and I, I don't really know why, but they don't, but let's, let's go back now to the possibility of enhancing your Bigfoot communications using things like meditative techniques and so forth. Is you're aware of anyone who's tried that? Yes, on my end, I am. Um, you know, if I could go back, there's a whole host of things that I, I would change up and who I would involve uh, in that chapter. That's not to say that it's not still happening here. Um, large in part, since the pandemic, things have slowed down quite a bit uh, where we live now. And we live in a remote area that is uh, that has some active reports to this day, but for the most part, it's calmed down. However, um, you know, the, uh, the use of music, in particular drumming, uh, we, as I said, we interview the scientist by the name of Henry Franzoni. And Henry, Henry has had a very interesting take about going into meditative states, either by altering your consciousness through, you know, what's available medicinally, uh, but also through music itself, in particular drumming, and how drumming um, is an attempt to get in a vibrational state and call them uh, to you. And when I say them, I'm speaking of Sasquatch and others as well, because you're never quite sure who's going to come to the powwow. So it makes you wonder whether or not the Native Americans themselves were initiating some kind of uh, spirit contact as well as Sasquatch contact through their own customs. Um, And in particular, there was a moment um, that we may get into in the second chapter where the use of drumming was mimicked 
or uh, there was a display of drumming after we had just spoken about drumming. An unexplicable sound very close to uh, a voice recorder. By then we had recorded so much audio that we kind of knew where the hot spots were on the property. And the use of drumming so close to the microphone with utterances and what can only be described as unknown vocalizations in concert with what we had just spoken about makes you think that music is very important to them. So I would say music, in particular drumming, uh, would be key uh, to do. I mean, everyone has an iPhone and there's tons of YouTube videos of people drumming. Um, that is certainly a way to alter the consciousness uh, of yourself and others around you. So that would be my first uh, step at doing that. Yeah, at our old cabin in upstate New York where the visitors, the apparent aliens, although I'd be the last person to say I know for sure that's what they are, uh, used to come drumming was a really effective tool we had one guy up there who was a master shamanic drummer and he's drumming away and these meteors start passing through the air at an altitude of about eight feet everyone's saying oh look at the meteors and i'm saying don't you understand those aren't meteors <laughs> meteors don't fly by horizontal horizontally leaving smoke trails at eight feet there's something going on here that's got to do with the drumming. It's mm -hmm. tremendously energetic drumming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no question. Uh, just to remind you folks, it's BigfootDoc.com, the wonderful documentary, A Flash of Beauty, Bigfoot Revealed, and upcoming A Flash of Beauty, Paranormal Bigfoot. Now, one of the things that's so important about all of this is its empowerment factor. And when you guys set out to make your documentary, I don't know what your motives were, but what turns out is A Flash of Beauty is one of the most empowering documentaries on every level I've ever seen because there's just so many articulate witnesses and you come away thinking, I live in a little corner of a very big world. What made you do it that way? What made you, what do you want here? What are you trying to accomplish? Let me put it that way. Is it on a deep level? Because it's not just making another documentary. You're got, you guys are way deeper into this than that. Yes, that's exactly right, Willie. And, and, and you nailed it when you said that we're in this tiny space and, and we have many, many um, ideas behind doing these series of documentaries. And the first is to open the eyes of the individual out there who is wondering what else is out there. Um, you know, we are not alone in the universe and we are not alone in, on earth. And um, I think it's important for, for folks to have open minds. And, you know, when they're out in the woods, when they're out in the wilderness, to be open to having some of these experiences. I think there's a lot of people out there that, that um, are missing these things because they're buried in their phone, they're buried in their day-to-day -day life. And I think that, that ultimately at the end of the day, provide, you know, knowing about these things and learning about these things provides for that much more of a life experience, a human experience. You know, and it's about, you know, going back to you asked about the communication and the meditation and 
some of these ideas help get people centered, if you will, help them, you know, everything on this planet vibrates. That's been proven by science. And if you can change your frequency, you're going to be more receptive to, to some of these phenomenons. And there, and it's not to say that every single one of these phenomena is positive. You know, we don't, we don't want to, we don't want to say that we want to say that the majority of them can be positive. You know, there is good and evil on this earth. There's good and evil in this universe. There's no question about that. But the vast majority of it is positive, at least in, in, in the research that we've done. And I, I think that, you know, we feel kind of like knowing this, having this knowledge, we feel a little bit of a responsibility to, to share it with people. People need to know about it. Someone asks you guys, can you call Bigfoot? Can you draw Bigfoot? What do you answer? As in to draw them in and to beckon them, summon them? Yeah. Mm. Some people would claim they can. Some people would claim that they uh, are the conduit and you have to go through them in order to access not only Bigfoot, but the phenomena itself. I would call that a cult. And so, yeah, and maybe, I would have a I have a feeling that along with that claim comes mm-hmm. a bill, like, <laughs> right? You just right, get five hundred dollars. Right. Yeah, the second they're looking for money, mm-hmm. forget it. Yeah, it's it's about a, money. There's a book or there's a some angle that's going. We have colleagues or friends of ours uh, that make those kind of claims, and I think that, that they're being played by the phenomena because the phenomena loves to play on man's ego. And I don't know if it works that way for people that are abductees as well. Absolutely, it does. Absolutely the same way. Okay. So that's the connection that I've come to make is that uh, I don't make any of those claims. And for people that make those claims, um, I say be very wary. But you can initiate contact with the phenomena by being open and being available at the right space and time and look for things that are very subtle. And those subtleties, I think, start to snowball into bigger events. Generally speaking, like we're going to a camp out here in a couple of days, we just came back from one. And these are all, you know, Sasquatch latent rich environments here in the Pacific Northwest. Traditionally, those take about three days or so to warm up activity. Most Bigfooters would say that activity doesn't start or initiate on the first night, second night, third night. But if you stay long enough, um, something will present itself to you. But you have to kind of know what to look for, because oftentimes these are not giant parades and exercises of, uh, you know, uh, showing themselves off and whole. These are subtleties. And so what to look for? Uh, I would say if you left out a voice recorder, that would be a good first step. Put it away from the camp to initiate activity. They, we don't seem to have permission to film them. Uh, we seem to have permission to record audio from them. But then you need to know how to go through audio. You need to look for, um, you know, certain type of signatures. And the audio equipment itself may be messed with. It may be taken and moved to a certain location. You need to look for those kind of subtleties. The point is, is that they're always watching to see if you have noticed these subtleties. And if you do, the game is initiated to the next level. So the more you pay attention, the more they pay attention until something big happens. You know, it's, it's very interesting because that's the same way it works in with people who are trying to make contact and work with contact in the close encounter phenomenon. You can't, you, it's, 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 a, it, it's a progression. 
And we, you know, we had at our cabin in upstate New York, we had some quite a number of really overt c- contacts with large groups of people. And it was always that way. The first day, a little bit would happen. Anne would usually notice it. She was the one who noticed all this stuff. I always, I was always gobsmacked and blindsided, but not Anne. And she would say, Whitley, keep your eyes open tomorrow because there's going to be things. And then the next day, usually someone would come in, and I'm bringing this up for a reason, and say that they saw a dead friend or relative or something walking on the road. And as soon as that happened, and would say, the physicians will be here later tonight. Now, are the dead connected in the Bigfoot uh, world? Is, is there a connection between our own dead and the Bigfoot phenomenon? I think there is. I think there is. Because I think that the, the science that we're, we're just beginning to discover connects all these phenomena together. There's, there's an underlying uh, energy behind all of it. And we have reports of people seeing ghosts just before Bigfoot encounters. So, so it's almost like there's a veil that's being lifted or there's a charge in the air. I, I don't know how else to describe it, but we're going to make a great attempt in the sequel. Um, you know, an individual we interviewed a few weeks ago in Sacramento talked about um, how, you know, he was having mind speak. He was meeting a family of Bigfoot. And at the same time, he saw a woman in white um, off, you know, maybe 50 yards away. And when he called out to her, he thought, he thought it was someone he knew. We called out to her. She disappeared into thin air. Yeah. So I, I think that these phenomena are all kind of in that same uh-huh. realm, if you will. So I definitely think there's a connection. And, uh, you know, the question is, is it the dead or is Sasquatch utilizing latent energy from people that have passed on? Because there's all too many reports of Sasquatch turning into other things, including uh, I remember Ron Moorhead's daughter, Rhonda Moorhead, described seeing a, a Sasquatch walk behind a tree and her cousin saw a black or white wolf run out the other side of the tree. These kind of reports uh, persist, even in the world of the people that believe this is Gigantopithecus, where they have unexplainable um, sightings of strange people that come up out of the, the woods that are dressed immaculately as though they've just walked out of a banquet hall and yet they've walked deep out of the deep woods and they shouldn't be there at all. Um, so what, what's, what's actually happening with Sasquatch uh, based upon these witnesses experiences, maybe accessing uh, morphing into something or, you know, taking the shape of something familiar to us. Uh, I think of that just based upon the amount of EVPs that we recorded at the Al Moon Lab. There were so many supernatural paranormal things happened there, but the dead kept presenting themselves and there were suicides that had happened um, connected to the property. There were deaths at that property. So with something accessing this open portal based upon the type of death they had or um, you just have to wonder, but certainly there is that connection. And I, I've listened to your show, uh, Unknown Country, for quite some time. And I know you and Anne talk about that extensively. So I was yes. always encouraged by that. Yeah, well, she still participates, even though she's not physically alive anymore. Mm-hmm. She's in some ways more alive now than she was when she was physical, because she knows more and is more 
Well, anyway, we're going to get into that. Uh, before we go, I want I we've made references to the Owl Moon Lab. Mm. I need to know. We need to know exactly what that is, because well, I know uh, I've got curious listeners. Yeah. So the Owl Moon Lab, in short, was named after a section of property in the Umpqua Forest, and I get into how that name came to be, but it happened to do with a full moon that was out the day that we found these um, giant Sasquatch knee prints. And once we, uh, once we uncovered these knee prints, it seemed to be a calling card for the rest of the phenomena to come back to the ranch. And so it's a chronicle. The book itself is just an ongoing chronicle. It's still going on. The property's still active. Um, now there's new homeowners involved, but it's the story of a window area much like Blind Frog Ranch or Stardust Ranch or Skinwalker Ranch, this, this uh, rural area is no different. They exist all over the property. I was just lucky enough to be there when the window was wide open. The question is, was it related to the homeowners as though they had their own hitchhiker phenomena or something that was you know, coalesced or attached to the property owner? I tend to think not because of the amount of witnesses that were describing the same thing within that vicinity the stuff that has happened with uh, Brett, Jill, and Mike when I brought them to the property to film. So these, these areas can be accessed by anybody. And I, I hope that they do because these, these places, these power spots change your life for the better if you allow them to because they can shift uh, what is important as a priority uh, in your life. And for me, that's exactly what it's done. So I've I was very happy to, to be a part of it and write about it and super happy to be a part of a film. The one thing we haven't mentioned is Flash of Beauty is a stunning film. It is one of the most jaw-droppingly beautiful films. It's a serenade oh. of the phenomena. And to sit back and watch it uh, is just, it's a pure joy because of the beauty part. So um, anyway, yeah, that's the story of the Al Moon Lab. Brett Eichenberger, I hope you, I probably am not pronouncing your name right, but that's an You interview. are. Oh, I am. How strange. And I'm so glad. Brett Eichenberger, Toby Johnson, A Flash of Beauty. Toby has just reviewed his film perfectly. It is an absolute joy to watch because it is physically beautiful. It's uplifting the way the, way the world is photographed in it. But it's more than physically beautiful. It is beautiful inside because these witnesses pour their hearts out and they will open yours to what we are all moving toward, which is a new world. Guys, thank you so much for being with us. And folks, Amazon, uh, virtually all the, I believe Netflix, it's available on Netflix. Is not it, yet. Is, not, yet. not yet. No, but on Amazon Prime, on, tell us where it's available just before we go. It's on Amazon, uh, Vudu, Google Play, the Microsoft Store. You can rent it on YouTube and Vimeo. It's also available on iTunes. Okay, great. And you can find out more at BigfootDoc.com. Thank you both for an absolutely thrilling edition of Dreamland. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. 
Whitley Strieber is your Dreamland host, and I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.